Welcome to worship at Chandler United Methodist Church. It is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and we are drawing the Christian year to a close. And as we prepare for Christmas, the new year, we have been looking at the importance of story and the formation of who we are and what we do, and most importantly, what we are becoming. Most of us love a story, a well-told story, and most of us love the right story told to us at the right time. Today I want to ponder something that's been kind of noticed by me. That I, I'm, I, it's bothering me, I, I'm, and I think there's something we should chase out here. Why is it that we do not hear from Joseph in all of Scripture? Not once. We hear about Joseph's concern that he needs to keep a strict interpretation of the law in response to Mary's conundrum, but not one word is quoted to him in Scripture. Uh, Joseph could give great parenting guidance on how to raise a Messiah and not just a kid who thinks he's the Messiah. Joseph was the one who introduced Jesus to the Torah and rabbinical writings through his habudim, the local religious club where the men of the community gathered, where they would sit together, where they would contemplate and discuss interpretation, and they would argue about application of scripture. Joseph would have taken Jesus probably in his adolescent years, first to listen to the conversation and then the debate, and then later to carefully form an argument within the group. But from Joseph in Scripture, we don't even get a fraction of a word. We, we hear about Joseph and Mary searching for Jesus when he begins to assert God's call in his life, and leaves his parents and goes to the temple without telling them, like 12-year-olds often will. The exasperation in Mary and Joseph is present in the text, but once again, we hear nothing from Joseph. It, it occurs to me that something is going on here, and I think we should tease this out. And, and here's what I think is going on. How long does it take for you to change your mind? And, and how does that conversation happen in you? When you have formed an opinion and you have spent a long time coming into a belief and you are sure that you are right, you are informed by tradition and experience and reason and scripture, you're reinforced by the witness of others. Maybe the familiar voices of family and friends, or maybe the never-ending patter of your preferred news station affirms what you have come to believe to be right and true and good. When you have formed an opinion that something is wrong and that you are in the right, how long does it take? What does it take for you to change your mind? 
And how much of that conversation is really worth listening to? I think what we have on our hands is Joseph, the fiancé of Mary, the pending father of this unborn child who is reluctant in the beginning because the agreed-upon rules are very clear. Joseph's first response is that of a man who practices his religion and seeks to do what is right. What? She's pregnant? Uh, mm. That's just, uh, mm. I cannot marry her. I cannot see a way for me to marry her. Uh, the guys at the club are going to want to stone her. At what point do you suppose Joseph finally said, Oh, right, then, uh, yeah, well, this is great, Mary. I, I, I'm on board. <laughs> How long does it take you to change your mind, to come into the realization that the direction you thought was right is, in fact, wrong? Does it take the visitation of an angel, the angel of the Lord? Is that what you're waiting for? I'm pondering this because Joseph is an outstanding scriptural example of most of us. We maintain our list of how we are right and we lean into it. And we also have a list of how others are wrong. And we lean away from that. We are in and they are out. And we call this list right, and we call it absolute and unchanging. But very interesting, what we define as right and good changes and evolves based on our experience and what we want and oftentimes what the voices of our peers and our friends and our news channel will permit. When we talk about changing our mind, our first fear is what those familiar with us will think about us and say about us. And what Joseph brings to this conversation is pretty profound. Have you ever recognized that your way, your line of thought, what you thought was right was in fact wrong? And now you need to leave town? We are interested in the rules and keeping them to the point that we risk worshiping the rules and our understanding of them rather than the God behind them. We're more interested in enforcing rules on others than we are in becoming intimate with the grace of God that is behind those rules. What's becoming a little bit clearer to me as I think about Joseph and what I see in Mary and what is present in the Gospel Christmas story, there is a theology that has escaped most religious thinking you and I have done. It doesn't show up in the books that you and I might have read. It, it is 
not so strange that this theology has been missed because it finds its center not so much in logic and the mind and in a good argument, but in the heart. This theology that I want to talk about this Sunday before Christmas is a strange and peculiar theology. And try as we might, this theology escapes containment or intellectual control. What I'm talking about here, I'm talking about the theology that helps us approach what logic tells us cannot be. This theology makes us bold when we would more likely be shy. This theology makes us optimistic when all evidence said we should be crushed by pessimism. This theology stirs strength within us when we have been stricken with weakness. This theology converts our confusion about who we are and our reluctant thoughts about our worth and dignity into an invincible confidence and an unshakable determination. This theology provides substance to our salvation and brings sanity to us amid an insane culture. It's a theology that gives hope to the hopeless through the struggle. What I'm talking about here is the theology of somehow. Familiar when the human within us marvels at the relentless ebb and flow of nature, the power of God's creation. We, we, it causes us to pause when we see an exquisite sunset or mountains shrouded in fog and we smile like recognizing a long lost friend when we glimpse rainbows. We drive for hours up hills to be in the forest. We, we become riveted to our widescreen televisions watching National Geographic or Nova. And if you are like me, you often find yourself overwhelmed by the power of what's going on around us, wondering, how can this be? And the only answer that makes any sense, and yet seems to flow with the universe, can defy the odds of rational consideration and still happen. The only answer is somehow. How is it that the alarm clock of eternity never fails and the seasons roll in perfect order year after year? How is it that the dewdrops know to drop in silence? And how is it that the thunder knows to celebrate and announce the wind and the rain? We may very well be versed in the answers of meteorology and we may understand the scientific principles of storms. But there is still the question that looms before us, how? And I suggest to you that the best answer for those of us who are trying to learn how to live our faith rather than explain it or rationalize it or confine it, the best answer is somehow. That question, how? is very present in the biblical record. Pharaoh's army wanted to know how. 
when they found themselves over their heads in rushing waters that had moments before been a dry pathway through the Red Sea. The city council of Jericho wants to know how the walls came tumbling down at the off-key blast of a bugle. 400 prophets of Baal noticed fire dancing in the clouds above them. Right before the whole bunch of them wondered how, they were consumed by that very same fire. King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know how when three Hebrew boys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked out of the fiery furnace, not a hair on their heads had been singed. Hmm. Obstinate people did not really want to hear Isaiah declare God's way, cease evil, learn good, seek justice, help oppressed, justice orphan, plead widow. And these obstinate people found security and protection in hearing their own voices unceasingly demand how, refusing to even consider the theology of somehow that Isaiah was presenting. A woman named Mary wanted to know how when she came up unexpectedly pregnant out of wedlock and started having angel dreams. When his wife-to-be came up pregnant and not by him, a man named Joseph wanted to know how he would ever be able to move forward in obedient faith to God. On the sea one day, Jesus told the winds to lie down. He turned off the lightning switch and he quieted the thunder and the disciples wanted to know how. One Sunday morning in a tomb, some women holding spices found the stone rolled away and the grave clothes folded neatly and they began asking how. And the angels told them, somehow. We come from a long line of asking how, and my only response to you is somehow, and that somehow is God's somehow. I know, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. We are closing in on Bethlehem. We are in near frantic search mode for everything we need to do, every checked box we need to square away. We need to secure every loose end to make absolutely certain that Christmas will come for us. We're sure of this. We've done it before. But strangely, we all know, because we've listened to the gospel Christmas stories, our being in control negates God's somehow. Can I tell you about God's somehow? It's in giving a coat that we are warmed. It is in providing pants and shirts and socks and shoes that we are clothed. It is in providing treatment to the ill that we are made well. It's in making sure that those who need food have it 
that we are fed. It is in giving away that we are provided for. It's in thinking of others that we enter the consciousness of God. It's in advocating justice that our faith is justified. This is quite the conundrum, and our first response to all of these is, how can this be? How does this strange transaction work? Somehow. And every day God gifts us presence to spend time listening and being fed by God's voice. Singing along with God the poet of somehow, listening to God the novelist of somehow, being sustained by God the sustainer of somehow, feeding on bread from God the baker of somehow simply taking in the beauty from God the blooming rose of somehow, being filled by God the spirit of somehow, knowing God is with us, God the eagle of somehow, God the rising voice of somehow comes through us as we find our voice speaking for the voiceless. God illuminates somehow, God teaches somehow, God loosens bondage somehow. God is the incarnation of somehow. God is the alpha and the omega of somehow. Christmas is the story of somehow. How long does it take you to change your mind? It doesn't matter because we are on God's time. And how long is God going to work on you? As long as it takes. As your pastor, I charge you to read the Christmas stories as the theology of somehow. Get out your family Bible and page through the names and lives of those who gave it to you, passed it down to you. Start there, and how you were blessed by their imperfect lives somehow, right? Or call up the birth stories from Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 2 on your iPhone or iPad and marvel as you read the Christmas stories asking this question, how can this be? You know. May the Spirit of God, whom we know in the person of Jesus, go before to show you the way, behind to nudge you forward when you are too frightened to move, above to watch over you, beside to be sometimes the only friend you have in this world, and within that you might know peace. Be always in peace. Amen. Amen.